We are this morning on week 11, believe it or not, of our teaching in 2 Corinthians. This series is now officially longer than most Netflix TV series. So, um, how's that for value for money? Um, <laughs> so, if you haven't been with us, if, if you're visiting with us today, or you, you've um, just been away for a really long time, um, we are studying this ancient, this ancient letter um, written by the Apostle Paul to the gathered community um, in Corinth, one of the earliest churches that we have record of. Um, and one of the things we've discovered uh, through our studies is that despite being really, really, really old, um, this letter has a lot to say to us today. And um, I know we like to think of ourselves as living in the age of enlightenment, the modern era, science has uncovered the reasons for the universe, Google has all the answers, and uh, technology distracts us from all the things we don't want to think about. Um, But at the heart of it, at the heart of it, we're the same people that we've always been. We are created beings who long for a relationship with our creator. We're not cosmic accidents, but we are beloved children of God. And if you don't know that, if you haven't ever heard that, then I really want you to know that this morning. You are a beloved child of God. You know, in fact, God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. It's what we've been singing about all morning. To die for you, to set you free from sin and death. And to be made new. And we get to live these new lives. These lives that have been transformed by the love of Jesus. And experience life in its fullest. Experience life as it's meant to be. And Paul's hope as he, as he writes these letters and as he visits these churches. Many of which um, he planted himself. Is that the people he writes to will learn more and more and more. What it looks like to live a transformed life for Jesus. To experience life in its fullest. And it affects everything. Jesus only deals in whole life transformations. It affects the way we think, the way we act, the words we use, our attitude, our temperament, and ultimately also our money, our wealth, our finances, the things that we have been blessed with by God. And it's in this section of the letter particularly that Paul is talking about money. And it's uh, over two chapters in our Bible, chapters 8 and 9, Um, And we've split it into two talks for you as well. Steve spoke on this last week and I'm going to speak on it again this morning. And the reason we've done that is actually there's there's a lot that Paul says. And there's a lot of really helpful and useful principles for us here this morning. And if you missed Steve's talk last week, you can catch up on the website under resources and sermon series. um, Or you can listen on iTunes to search for um, Tamworth Elim. However, I am going to briefly just step back into Steve's talk from last week um, for those that weren't here and just to make sure that we are all on the same page before we uh, wade into this week's chapter. So last week then, Steve, he gave us a little bit of background about um, what was going on here and he mentioned that one of the characteristics of the early church, one of its defining factors was this spirit of generosity. We read in Acts 2, That on the day of Pentecost, that's the day when the Holy Spirit arrived with humanity, um, 3,000 people 
3,000 became followers of Jesus. And, and those 3,000 people, it says, they sold their possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so the church is birthed in this spirit of generosity. This awesome, large community of people that are giving away their stuff, selling their things and making sure that, that everyone's needs are met. And as they do that, the church continues to grow. In Acts 4.4, we read that the church goes um, up to about 5,000. And they love and they meet together and they teach and they learn and they sell and they give and they love and they give. And the church grows and grows and grows. And then in Acts 8, we read that this this huge persecution breaks out against the church. And it says that, that all but the apostles were scattered and families are torn apart and jobs are lost and they, they become impoverished. And the church in Jerusalem, it, it continues to grow, but they don't quite have the resources that they had at the beginning. And so Paul, he makes it part of his mission to encourage the church that is outside Jerusalem to give generously to support those that are suffering inside of Jerusalem. And as he, as he travels from church to church, he tells them that on his way back, he wants to collect this offering from them and take it with them to Jerusalem. So that's the context. That's, that's the context for this, these two chapters, 8 and 9. That's what he's talking about. He's trying to encourage the generosity of the believers for those that are suffering. And last week, Steve talked about two of the ways in which Paul encourages them to give generously. First of all, he talks about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. So there were, uh, this was the church in Philippi, um, Thessalonica and Berea. And we have letters in our Bible uh, to the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And Paul, what he does is he, he holds these churches up as an example to the believers in Corinth. He says in chapter 8 verse 2, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. And Corinth, by comparison, was a, was a wealthy city. It was, it was a well-off place. Um, and, 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 and Paul is saying, look, you know, despite the fact that these guys don't have as much to their disposal as you two, they've been so generous. And he goes on and says, they, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the Lord's service for people. It's like he's saying, guys, they're just, they were so desperate to get involved and, and to help and reach out to the needy. I didn't even need to ask them. And they were, they were throwing um, their money towards me for this collection. So the first example he gives are the churches in Macedonia. But the second example, and, and the most important example for Paul, in fact, Paul's inspiration in all things is the person of Jesus. Okay? And he says in chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. Though he was rich. How was Jesus rich? Well, Paul writes in um, a letter, another letter to the Philippians, um, this. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was God. He was with God at the beginning of all things. John refers to him as the very word of God. There was nothing and no one that was not at his disposal. This was unprecedented wealth. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God 
something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He was born in poverty, wasn't he? You remember the Christmas story? He was born in an animal shed, placed in a feeding trough, grew up uh, surrounded by controversy, people not knowing his parentage. He left home and he had no home or possessions of his own. He was by every very definition of the word poor. And he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. After removing from himself the splendor of heaven, becoming a man, he willingly goes to the cross to die for us that we might receive the riches of heaven and learn what life is like in its fullest. So Paul's main reason, Paul's main reason for encouraging generous giving is Jesus. Jesus gave up everything for me, for me. And he is profoundly moved by that idea. If you want to know how you should give, why you should give, there's your example there on the cross. It's Jesus. So that's a very, that's a very quick step back into last week. Steve obviously said um, a lot more than that. But those are the things that I want you just to have in your mind as we move forward into chapter 9 this week. So let's get into it. If you haven't got your Bibles, chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. Uh, and I'll put the words up on the screen as well. This is what he says. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Telling them that since last year, you in Archaea were ready to give, and, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should, should not prove hollow. Because, you, you know, you may be ready, as, you, as, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, well, um, we'll not say anything about it to you. Well, we'd be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and, and finish the arrangement for the generous gift you have promised. Then you'll be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. I love how Paul starts this chapter. Did anyone pick up any hints of sarcasm at all there? from Paul. There's no need for me to write to you, because I know how generous you are. In fact, I've been boasting about you. And <laughs> did you notice who he's boasting to as well? It's the churches in Macedonia. He says, you in Archaea, that's, where the, that's the region where Corinth was located. Corinth was the most important city in that region. It says, your, it's your enthusiasm that stirred them into action. And so in chapter 8, he tells them that, that the Macedonians have given generously, and so they should. And then in chapter 9, he tells them that he's been telling the Macedonians that they've given generously, and so they should. And in fact, if you read through his letters, it's fascinating. He does it to the Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 26, he says, For Macedonia and Archaea were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the Lord's people. Now he's commending both of them to the Romans. It'd be like me going down the road to, to preach at St. George's and saying, guys, you won't believe how generous they are up at Elim. They give so much, so willingly, and they have so little. And then coming back this week and saying, guys, you won't believe how much they give at St. George's down the road. They're so generous. He's commending them both to each other. But you know, the thing is, Paul never, Paul never slags off 
or talks down about one church to another. He might challenge the churches individually, but when he speaks about them to each other, he always speaks of their good qualities, the ways in which he has been encouraged by those churches. You know, the writer to the Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. And I think this is exactly what Paul wants to do to these churches. He wants to encourage them, to spur them on to love and good deeds. And in this particular context, he wants to encourage their generosity. I wonder how we might encourage generosity in each other. But then Paul moves on to offer some more of his practical advice. Last week's chapter was very, very practical and and this week is no different. Really, he's told them why they should give. Jesus, Jesus is the reason that you need to, to think about living generously because of how generous he's been to you. And then he inspires them with the generosity of others. The Macedonian churches, they're, gosh, they're giving so much at the moment. And then he makes it personal. And this is what he says in verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So I think there are, in these two verses of this chapter, three ways in which Paul encourages the Corinthians to give. The ways in which he wants them to go about it. First of all, he encourages them to give generously. He said, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. I don't know um, a lot about farming. It may surprise you. Um, But I, I would imagine that the more seed you scatter the more seed you put into the ground the better the harvest will be and i mean we need a little bit of care here because paul isn't saying that the more you give away the more you will get back for yourselves the richer you will become as though the only reason we would give is to gain for us but he's saying that the more generous we are the greater the result of that generosity will be and i'm going to come back in a few moments time to what the result of our generosity is. That's the main focus I want to have with you this morning, the result of generosity. So he says we we give generously, but he also says that we should give willingly. He says do not give reluctantly or under compulsion. And Steve mentioned this um, last week, but it's worth mentioning again. We never want people to come into our church on a Sunday morning and feel as though they are being strong-armed into handing over their cash. That's not what we're about. That's not what we want to be about. In fact, if you've never met Jesus and your life hasn't been transformed by him, then we don't want to give you, you to give us sorry, um, anything. What we want to do is welcome you into our community, accept you as you are, and tell you about the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And we trust that, that when your life has been transformed by Jesus, that eventually that transformation is going to have an impact on what you do with your money, with your wealth. Because as I said at the start, Jesus only deals with whole life transformation. But even then, even then I would say that your giving is a personal decision between you and God. Paul writes, you should give what you've decided to give in your heart. And if you're not sure how much that is, you know, if you're looking for me to give you an amount this morning or something like that, then, then I would suggest that you go and spend time in prayer over it. 
that you speak to your Heavenly Father about it, that you thank Him. Always start with thanking. Thank Him for how much you've been blessed, how much you've been given. And then ask, how much of that should I give back to you, to your work, to your church, to your community? Because the thing is with whole life transformation is that our priorities change. And it may have been the case that, that before you knew Jesus, the thing that made you happiest was, was spending our money and our wealth on ourselves, on, on things or, or nights out or, or whatever that might be. But when we come to know Jesus, we discover that there is truth in his words. It is more blessed. And blessed means to be happy and whole and fulfilled. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so we need to take a second look. And when we've decided what it is we want to give... We should give it willingly as a response to what is in our heart. And God isn't interested in people begrudgingly giving him anything. If you begrudge it, it's better not to give. And then the final thing Paul says is that we should give cheerfully. We should be happy about it. If it makes you miserable, don't do it. But do ask why. Why does it make me miserable? Why is it so hard for me to do because you know giving is a it's a it's a part of our worship it's a response that we make to the grace that we've received from God and it allows us in some small way to demonstrate our gratitude to our Lord and Savior and we have so much to be grateful for we really do i think sometimes we forget just how much we have how much God has blessed us you know globally speaking you are amongst the richest people if you um, have an annual income of £20,000, which is below the national average, that puts you in the top 3% in the whole world of the richest people. If you're above 40000 it puts you in the top 1%. Currently, nearly half the world's population survive on less than £1.50 a day. I don't think you can buy a coffee in Starbucks for £1.50. You know, if you're going to eat today, if you're wearing clothes and have a roof over your head, you are richer than 75% of the rest of the world. We are so, so blessed. And it should be a joy that we can use our wealth and our riches to benefit others. That God has given us this incredible responsibility that we get to share what we have with those that are in need. So we give generously, we give willingly, and we give cheerfully. But what's the result? What happens when we give? What happens to us? What happens to others? Let me read you um, the rest of the chapter. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. 
because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so Paul wants them to see and he wants them to know that their generosity, their their willingness to help those that are in need has uh, some incredible results. And there's three ways it has results. It does something for us, something for others, and it does something for God. So let's start with ourselves. When we give, when we are generous with the things that we have, there is blessing to us. He writes in verse 10, Now, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Well, back to our farming metaphor. The more we sow, the greater the rewards, both in terms of harvest and the seed. And I'll come back to the harvest in a few minutes. But the seed is our resources. It's the things that God has given us. It's things that he has blessed us with in order that we might bless others for his purposes, for his kingdom. And what Paul is essentially teaching here is a spiritual principle. And the principle is the more that we give, the more that we are generous, the more we will receive. Not for ourselves, but for his purposes so we can continue his work. That's why Paul writes in verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And God doesn't want us to hang on to the things that he has given us. He wants us to use them for his purposes. And Jesus illustrates this same spiritual principle for us um, in a story that he tells in Matthew 25. I'm sure many of you will be very familiar with the story. Um, It's about a man who goes away on a long trip. Uh, And before he goes, he calls um, three of his servants together and he gives each of them an amount of wealth, an amount of money to be used. And it says that he gives them each money according to their own abilities. They don't have the same amount. And then he leaves. And you know, the first servant, he uses the money, he uses what he's been given, he invests it uh, and he makes more. And the second servant does the same. But the third servant is concerned is worried that he's going to lose what he's been given. And so he buries it. He hides it in the ground. And when the man returns, the first two servants are commended for what, using what they've been given. He says, well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. But the third servant is chastised. He's called wicked and lazy and he's told that what little he has will be taken from him. And Jesus ends this story by saying, To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And you see, God watches us. He watches how we use the things that we've been given. How we use our wealth and our money to see if we can be trusted with more. To see if he can continue to bless us, knowing that we will continue to use it for his purposes. Now, Jesus told um, another story in Luke 11 about a man who had such an incredible abundant harvest that he decided to build um, a bigger barn to store it all. And he said, I'm going to do that so that I can live off that and wealth and take it easy and, and, and do what I want in my life. And in the story, God says, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Look at all the good you could have done 
with what I gave you. Look at all the people you could have helped. Look at the difference that you could have made in this life. And now it's too late. Because you know, none of, it, none of the things we make in this life, none of the, the, the wealth that we accumulate, none of the things we have are going to come with us. We don't get to take any of it to the next life, do we? So we need to be good stewards of the things that we've been given. But Paul does tell us there's a reward, and he calls it a harvest of righteousness. What is a harvest of righteousness? Well, it's not a bigger bank account. It's not a flashier car. It's not a more expensive home. It's not even a newer iPhone. Um, You might remember back in chapter 5, Paul tells the Corinthians that God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is that transformed life that I started talking about this morning. This is when we begin to understand what it means to live right. That's what righteousness is. It's living right before God. And you know, the Bible tells us that we, um, we're made in his image. We're created to be like him, to reflect him. There's something divine in our nature. And when we hang on to our wealth, when, we, when we're selfish, when we live only for us and personal gain and satisfaction, that's... That's destructive to us. It's bad for our souls. It means that we we put our faith and our hope and our trust in the things that we have, not in the one who created us, not in God. Listen to the warning that Paul gives his protege, Timothy. He says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love, the love of money is a root. It's a cause of all kinds of evil. Now Jesus puts it even more bluntly than that. He says you can't serve God and money. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And so when we live generously, when we give generously, it releases us from that hold that money can have in our lives. It makes God that highest priority in our lives. And the result of that is righteousness. We're going from being people who would would bury our money, would build bigger barns and hang on to it for ourselves, to people who are becoming increasingly like Jesus, who left the splendor of heaven, who gave up everything for us. That's our harvest. That's the harvest of righteousness. So, it does something for us, but it also does something for others. He writes in verse 12, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, though the people are helped, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. You see, our generosity, it inspires gratitude in others. Gratitude or thankfulness inspires generosity in them. It's this wonderful circle that we create. And I've seen this at work time and time again. And and in this church in particular, I think think of Food Bank. I think that's a wonderful practical example we have of that. The generosity of people, the willingness to buy food, provide for others that have none inspires in those that receive it this gratitude and thanks for what they have. And then we see them, you know, weeks, months later when they're back on their feet, returning the food, bringing more in and saying, I was blessed, I was helped. 
at a time and now I want to give back. I love being part of inspiring generosity in others. I don't know if you've ever been um, the recipient of someone's generosity, if anyone's ever been particularly generous with you. I wonder what that did for you when you received it. I remember a number of occasions when I was um, younger that people um, in the church I belonged to being very generous with me um, and giving me various amounts of money. And and, and often it was done anonymously so that I could afford to do various things. And I'll tell you something. The greater gift was not the money that I had received, but it was what it did to me. It was what it inspired in me. It made me want to be a more generous person. It did something to me spiritually as I received their generosity. And then Paul continues in verse 13. He says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. The Corinthians, they've claimed to be followers of Jesus. And one of the evidence of that is um, their generosity. Paul is saying we can see the impact, we can see the difference God has made by the way that you're living your life. And there is, um, there is a cultural context to this, that, that, that Paul is, the reason Paul is writing this. As we said earlier, you know, the church started in Jerusalem and it started um, amongst the Jewish nation, with the Jewish people. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was not just for the Jewish people, it's for all of us. That's why most of you are sitting here today. And we see through Acts that it spreads, the gospel goes out. Um, And in Acts 10 we read, the Jewish believers, they were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And so all these new believers appear and then they think, well, how do we, how do we fit together? How do we coexist? You know, we've, we're Jewish. We've got the history, this background. You're Gentiles. You don't know enough about us. How do we start living together? How does the, this gospel bring us together and make us one? And so Paul says to them, you know, your generosity as you give money to those that are struggling is going to be further evidence that God is at work in your lives. And the result of that is going to be greater unity in the church. And I think we have um, amazing, again, examples of that in our own context. I think of Hope Village and and Malawi and Jackie. And when we give generously to them and that work, it creates a unity between Tamworth Elim and Hope Village Malawi. It brings us closer to them. It gives them cause to celebrate and praise God for what they've received from us. And it gives us um, cause to celebrate and praise God when we see malnourished children being brought back to health and returned to life from the brink of death. And they pray for us and we pray for them and we send money and we hear good news and it brings us together as the global church. I love it. Do you love it? It's good, right? Maybe. You're not sure. It is, I promise. Finally, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish in a few moments. Our generosity does something for God. Paul finishes the section by saying, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And the word that he uses in Greek for indescribable is the word anakdigeatos. Now, any Greek scholars in? Good, you won't know if I've mispronounced it. <laughs> Don't worry if you've never heard of the word before. It's because... Um, Paul made it up. 
It didn't exist before he used it anywhere. And essentially what happened is Paul, he, he thought about the, the generosity of God. He thought about how much God had given him, how much he'd been blessed by God. And he went, you know what, there isn't a word in the language that I speak that is good enough to describe how much God has given me. It's, it's essentially a negative version of another Greek word that means to declare. So he was trying to say that God's generosity is undeclarable. Indeclarable. You see the problem. The message puts it this way. It says, thank God for his gift. Uh, This gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. We cannot ever, ever outgive God. James reminds us that um, every good and perfect gift from above comes down from the Father. Everything good, everything right, everything true and beautiful in your life is a gift from God. Jesus reminds us that, that even though we know, we're, we're, you know we don't get it right, in fact he says even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts if we ask Him? He delights, He loves to be generous with us. And when we imitate Him, when we are generous with the things that God has given us, it brings glory to Him. We become image bearers. We become the righteousness of God. We are transformed. You know, those of you are parents, how much joy does it bring you when your children learn to share? When you watch your kids being generous with each other, how much disappointment does it bring you when they say, no, it's mine. You can't have it. God delights in our generosity. He delights when we imitate him. So we've come to the end of the chapter and the section on money. If you're listening on podcast and you've been avoiding church, you can come back next week. <laughs> let, me, um, let me just summarise. <laughs> We're motivated by Jesus. We have to be. We are always motivated by Jesus. He left heaven for us. He gave his all for us. And we can inspire others to good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur each other on to love and good deeds. And so we give generously, willingly and cheerfully. And if it's not willing or cheerful, then maybe we need to say why. (laughs) Why am I finding this harder? Has Jesus' transformation of me reached my wallet yet? And we reap a harvest of righteousness. We become image bearers. We become more like God. We learn how to be blessed, how to be happy, how to lead a fulfilled life. And we inspire gratitude in others, which inspires generosity in them, which brings unity in the church. It's this wonderful circle. And we bring delight to our Heavenly Father. We bring Him joy as we imitate Him in His generosity. Even though... We're never, ever going to be able to give enough. Paul was pretty good at motivating people, right? Do you feel motivated this morning? You're just warm and want to have a sleep, aren't you? Have a look again at this chapter. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be grateful for, and so much to benefit us, others, and God by leading generous lives, whatever that might look like for us. Okay.
Let me pray to close. I wonder if the guys want to come back up um, as I do that, and then we can finish uh, with a final song this morning.